hear the word of the Lord. But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you, as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken, as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle, tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice, with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. I'm not going to hold him while I preach. Um, I'm going to invite you to have a seat. Our preschoolers can be dismissed to their class. Our teachers, preschool teachers can line them up at the door and take them on to their class. If you haven't already, I want to invite you to take out a copy of God's Word and turn to Isaiah chapter 9. We're going to be looking at some verses in Isaiah 8 as well as Isaiah 9. Over the past few weeks in our Advent series, we have been, as, as Tanya mentioned, the viewfinder and illustration I used last week, we have been uh, looking at various angles or aspects of the coming of Christ by looking at passages in Isaiah that foretell of his coming. Um, this week we're in probably the most famous of those, Isaiah chapter 9. If you grew up in church at all, I know for a fact you probably have this passage memorized, and it could be because it was read in services, it could be because it was preached. More likely it was because it was read during Christmas plays, and those are just hard to forget, you know, especially the ones with the live animals and all the chaos that, that can happen there. Um, our home church never did that, but we would always go to the, the churches that did, and I would love to say it was a spiritual journey that we would take, but really it was entertainment. We'd, we just love to go and see all that could go wrong at, we had a weird family. We would go and just see all that could go wrong, and it was always very entertaining to see. But this is a very famous passage. It's a passage that highlights the hope of Christmas. It's a passage that highlights the dawning of this light from heaven that we see comes as a child is born and a son is given. Um, one of the, the greatest movies from uh, the, the 90s, um, The Shawshank Redemption, uh, there's, there's this great motif about hope. Hope is a, is a really big theme in, in that movie. Um, it's a movie about uh, uh, these, these men who were, who were in prison. Uh, and eventually, um, actually, no, I cannot say what I was about to say. In case you haven't seen the movie and you want to watch it, I would have just spoiled it horribly for you. Um, however, there's a character, Morgan Freeman, he plays a character that's, that's called Red. And Red struggles with hope. Um, there's this really famous quote from Red in the movie. He says, hope is a dangerous thing. Hope can drive a man insane. 
at this point, Red has uh, been up for parole, and his, he, he has never been able to get out. And so at this point, he has lost all hope, and he has uh, come to the conclusion that to have hope is foolish and to have hope is painful because you keep thinking that something better is out in front of you when in reality, it is never going to happen. So why hope for it? Hope is dangerous. It can drive a man insane. Isaiah is writing to the people of Judah. He's, he's essentially preaching a sermon here in, in chapters 8 and 9, and he's addressing the people of Judah, specifically the remnant, the ones who had remained faithful, although the rest of the nation had been led astray by their king. And, and while the northern kingdom of, of Israel is, is being invaded and being taken into exile, this is a time when the people of Israel need hope and where a lot of them had given up hope. And maybe you're in a similar situation as you head into this Christmas season. Maybe you desperately need hope. Maybe you want to have hope, but you're unsure of where that hope can be anchored. Because if, if you just have an empty hope, it's really not, it's really not hope at all. It's, it's, it's just, you know, trusting the, the odds to fall in your favor. And, and that's not something that you can really tether yourself to when you go through a difficult time. So maybe you want hope. Maybe you need hope. Um, maybe you're wondering if hope is real at all well isaiah shows us in this passage that there is light that will come it's the light of christmas and it will come and it will shine and this light gives hope to our waiting the people of israel are in waiting we are in waiting for the world as it is to no longer exist for every evil thing to be vanquished for every sorrow to be undone for every tear to be wiped away and while we wait for that we need hope in order to wait without going insane. We're going to see the light of Christmas here in Isaiah 9, and uh, I want to show you how the light of Christmas gives us hope by asking and answering two questions from this passage. Question number one, who is the light of Christmas for? Who is it for? Light comes, but who does it come for? And second, who is the light of Christmas about? Who is it for and who is it about? Isaiah gives us answers to each of these. So let's, let's start. Who, who is the light of Christmas for or who is Christmas for? You know, we, uh, just culturally, people would probably give a lot of answers to that. You know, who, who is Christmas really for? Um, I, I think most people would say, well, Christmas is really for the kids. You know, it's just, it's the time of year the kids always look forward to. We, we do a lot for the kids. There's lots of marketing toward, toward children during this time of year. I mean, the schools this past week, I know our kids at, at all of their, their schools here in the uh, Tupelo School District, they, they had Christmas parties that felt like every single day. And they, you know, we, we had to, you know, stress ourselves out over dressing them, you know, correctly for all the themes that they had. But, but Christmas is a big deal for kids. So people would say, you know, Christmas is it's, it's for the kids, for the children. You know, others, they may say that, well, Christmas is for the kids, but it's also really for families. You know, uh, Christmas is primarily for families. It's, it's kind of like Thanksgiving. You get together with your families. You know, a number of folks are out this week because they're visiting their families right now. We're considering, you know, when to, to visit our families around Christmas, spend a couple days uh, with them in Kentucky, and you may be doing the same. Maybe you're hosting a family gathering, and so, you know, people would say that Christmas time is, is family time. It's, it's for families. Um, others would say, you know, Christmas is really for those who are all about traditions, 
You know, some people would say, you know, I'm a nonconformist. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a traditionalist. So, you know, you, and really, it's, it's my generation. I'm so sorry. Where we're just like, you know, oh, Christmas, it's a, it's a really valued tradition. We're not going to do that just because, you know, just because. We're going to be nonconformists. We're not going to, you know, uh, celebrate those traditions. And so they would say Christmas is for people who, who really appreciate traditions, the traditionalists. Others would say, you know what, we need to stop this, uh, you know, secular and, and like religious blend this time of year. And we just need to acknowledge that Christmas is a festival, it's a season, it's, it's a celebration for Christians. Okay, Christmas is for Christians. And maybe, maybe you even have people in, in you know, your, your family, or maybe you, you know, believe like you prefer, okay, look, I, I'm kind of sick of our culture hijacking, you know, Christmas and turning it into something that it's not. Christmas, the coming of Jesus, the birth of Jesus, it is for Christians. When we start to think that way, um, we start to leave a lot of people out, and we start to miss the real point of Christmas. We start to miss who Christmas is really for, who the light of Christmas really comes for. Others may even say that Christmas, even if you didn't want to admit this, this is largely true. Christmas is primarily for the haves, not the have-nots. Think about all the things we do at Christmas. Buying gifts, decorating our homes, and, and going to all these parties and all these functions. All of our celebrations are are really connected to our resources. And so, you know, Christmas is for those who have. It's not for those who are the have-nots. And all of these ideas really miss the point. You can't, you can't pull that from Isaiah 9. The first few verses of Isaiah 9 teach us that the promised child who would be born, the light of the world that was to come, is for specific people. But notice who it's for. It's for those who are completely hopeless. It's for those who know there is no other way. It's for those who have pitched their tent in the land of darkness. It's for those in despair. It's for those who live in the shadow of death. And so we see that Christmas is not for those who seemingly have it all together or those who pretend like they do. Christmas is for the broken. Christmas is for the suffering. The light of Christmas is for the sinners in the world. The light has come to those who dwell in darkness. I want you to back up with me to Isaiah 8, verse 21, and see this. Here's what Isaiah says. He's he's addressing the the remnant, the faithful in, in the kingdom of Judah, and he's just mentioned how the people around them are are seeking answers to all the problems from, from necromancers and all the, all the dark arts around them, and they're not seeking the Lord, and they've turned their backs on the Lord. And he addresses them in verse 21, and he says, They will pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God. And they will turn their faces upward. And look at the effects of this, of this rebellion. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish. And they will be thrust into thick darkness. This is, this is the context here. The people of Israel are in darkness. They are suffering. And they are not just suffering from things outside of themselves. They are suffering because of their own sin. They have rebelled against their God. They have turned from him. 
And then you would expect the next few verses to just be praise for the remnant. Ah, but you faithful ones. You know, there will be judgment on all of those who have refused to be faithful. Someone is going to come to remove you from all of the wicked of the earth. Don't worry, it's coming. That's not what we see here in Isaiah 9, verse 1. Here's the hope. But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. You see, God's people lived in darkness. I want you to notice Isaiah's descriptors of Israel's condition, distressed and hungry, enraged and rebellious, darkness, gloom, anguish. These regions that are mentioned here, Naphtali and Zebulun, they were not only lower states in, in the region of Israel, so, you know, not, not like, think, think the opposite of Jerusalem. If Jerusalem is, you know, like New York City, then, you know, Zebulun and, and Naphtali are kind of like East Fernstadt, Kentucky, where I'm from, just like, just Podunkville, you know, just, just absolutely nothing. Um, and so you have these poorer regions, and, and so they were lower already, but these regions were also the front door of invasion. When Israel was invaded, it was invaded right at Naphtali, right at Zebulun. These regions suffered greatly. The, the Assyrians, they conquered those lands first. And so that's why Isaiah says in the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, the land of, of Naphtali. And these lands definitely on their, own, on their own merit do not seem like the best candidates for the arrival of God's perfect king and his eternal kingdom. Yet what we see, not only here, but also in Matthew chapter 4, in John 1, is that the light of the world is going to dawn specifically in these unlikely places. It will be in Nazareth. It will be in Galilee of the nations, Galilee, where the light of the world would first dawn. And on that day, their gloom will turn to glory, and their anguish will turn to joy. You see, we walk in darkness too. And if you, you have a tendency to minimize the darkness that's around you and the darkness that's within you, you need to remember that it is to those who live in darkness that the light has come. You see verse 2? The people who walked in darkness. Who? The people who walked in darkness. Which, which is a metaphor for not only those who are suffering, but those who are sinful, those who have rebelled, those who had turned against the light of the Lord, those who dwell, those who walk in darkness, it is they who have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, in the shadow of death, on them has light shone. You see, Christmas is not for those who pretend that they are in the light. Christmas is for those who have no other way out of the darkness. It's for those who have seen their hopelessness in this world. It's for those who have grown weary of their own sin. Darkness is all around us. We live in a fallen world. I want you to meditate today on your current darkness. What does darkness look like for you right now? If, if you're weary 
this year like never before, if you are struggling like never before, if you can't believe the situation you find yourself in, if you are asking the Lord as the psalmist do, how long, O Lord, how long will you allow this to go on? If you feel like you just don't measure up, and if you are sick and tired of suffering, you need to take heart today. Because the eternal God of the universe, against whom we have turned our backs, he has come for us. He has set his sights on lowly Galilee, and he has sent his light there. Have you seen in Matthew 4? Turn real quick to Matthew 4. How quickly can you get there? I'll race you. In Matthew 4. It's so beautiful what Matthew does here. In Matthew 4. So in Matthew 4, it follows the, the baptism of Jesus. We're taken to the temptation of Jesus. He's in the wilderness. He comes out of the wilderness. And he begins his ministry. But before he begins his ministry, look at what we see. Start in verse 13 of Matthew 4. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea. Where's Capernaum? Matthew tells us, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. And then Matthew gives us this incredible summary of what happened next. So, yeah, it's cool that Jesus started his ministry in the very place that Isaiah said the light would shine. But he gives us even further confirmation here. He says, and from that time, Jesus began to preach a very specific thing. Turn or repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is very clear. Matthew is saying he is the promised king from Isaiah 9 who has come. He is the light of the world who has dawned on our darkness. So if the darkness around you feels like it is caving in and taking over, take heart because the light of life and joy and glory has come for you. Has come for you in this state of suffering and sin. This darkness that's all around us. And listen, we saw a few weeks ago, we, we can't play the victim here. And just act like that we're in a dark place and everything around us is dark and, you know, oh, poor, helpless me. We, we also have darkness within us that, that the Lord rescues us from. You know, the Assyrians really were battering down the walls of Israel, but, but the darkness was within them too. The Israelites really had turned from their God and only a, a remnant really remained faithful. We're prone to turn from the Lord just as Israel did. And by nature, we walk in darkness in our thoughts and in our words and in our actions. And we don't live a life that is going to measure up to God's perfect standard. And the bad news of this is that this inner darkness separates us from our God of light and his original design for our existence in this world. Even worse news is that we can't do anything about it we can't fix this problem, no matter how hard we try, no matter how moral you become. That's not the message of Christmas, to become a really moral person. 
that really doesn't do us much good. Your morality cannot rescue you from the darkness that's within you. And, and even, you know, more dangerous news is not that we can't solve this problem no matter what we try. The dangerous news is that we try. It's dangerous to try to save yourself. Because the more you try, the more likely you are to be deceived into thinking that you can, or thinking that you have, or thinking that you're okay. And you become numb to the darkness and blind to the darkness, and you don't see it anymore, and you, you lack the awareness to see how much you need the light from heaven to dawn. But despite all of that, we have reason to rejoice this morning because God knows the darkness that's within you. You remember this? We, we remind you occasionally. God knows your sinful habits. God knows the sinful attitudes and actions that you commit that no one else knows. He knows. He knows how unfaithful you can be. He knows how often you turn your back. He knows how hypocritical you and I are prone to be. And he's come for us anyway. He, he, he sent his light anyway. It's almost like Isaiah, he's, he's highlighting how bad Israel was and how horrible the world was. And then he says, yes, to them, on them, the light has come. The people who continued to walk in darkness have seen a great light. This is the good news of the gospel, that God did not send an instruction manual to show us how to find the light. It's so crucial. Meditate on that. The people who walked in darkness didn't find the light. They saw it. They, they saw it. It happened outside of their control, outside of their will, outside of their power. God did it. He caused the light to shine. And they simply saw it. Those who continue to walk in darkness have seen a great light. The light of Christmas is not for those of us who have it all together. The light of Christmas is for the hopeless. It's for those overwhelmed by the darkness around them, and it's for those who are overwhelmed by the darkness within them. And you and I will see and receive this great light when we stop trying to impress everyone around us and instead look outside of ourselves to the child who was born, the light who was to come. So who's the light for? It is for the hopeless. But the second thing we need to see is who the light of Christmas is about. So who's it for? It's for the hopeless. But who is it about? And this is, this is where we get to the most you know, famous part of this passage, verses 6 and 7. The source of the light that is coming into the world to bring us joy and glory and victory is a child who is both God and king. It's, it's a marvelous, unbelievable passage. The light that comes for those dwelling in deep darkness comes through Jesus. Let's look at the passage. Starting in verse 6, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forever. 
more. Jesus is the light from heaven coming into the world, shattering our darkness, giving us life and joy and glory forevermore. He is the one who has come to reign as the God-man. Now, this is uh, uh, really crucial. Isaiah is essentially giving us two things here. He's giving us the identity of the one who will come, and then he's giving us the mission of the one who will come. And so, so first, he gives us this incredible identity. So he says, the one who will come, the light from, from heaven, is, is bound up in this child. So a child is born. And he goes on, he says, a son is given. So, so we, have, we have a human person here that's being referred to. Um, but but then, he, then he describes him even further. And he says, this human child will be called, and then he uses language that is only used of God. It, it's a paradox. It, it has confounded uh, anyone who has given serious thought to this text since it has been studied. A child will be born, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And the fact that this is written and it has survived means that Isaiah also believed that it wouldn't be blasphemy to call him those names. Because for the Israelites, and also for us, to refer to any human person as divine is blasphemy. It's utter blasphemy unless it's true. You, you cannot refer to another person as God because they're a person. And yet, this child who would come is both God and man. You see, everything before verse 6 indicates that if light is to come, God has to come. There's this language in verse 4 that, that takes us back to Gideon and, and the might of the Lord in coming and rescuing his people in this miraculous way. It says, For the yoke of his burden, the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. And so the picture is God is going to show up in the same way that he did for Gideon, in, in the same way that he did for the Israelites as they were leaving the land of Egypt. God himself is going to come down in a pillar of light and he is going to rescue his people. And the same thing is happening here before verse 6. And then you get to verse 6, and he says, and it's going to happen through a child. God's going to do it, and a child's going to do it. And it, and it, and it gets confusing. Is God going to do this? Or is man going to do this? Be the light. Rescue us from darkness. Save us from our sin. God or man? And the answer is yes. The God-man, Jesus, is going to come and be what, what we have totally failed to be, the perfect righteousness of God from heaven. And then he is going to die as the God-man to perfectly reconcile God and man. Light and hope and, and life and joy and glory can only come if God comes to us and he has come to us through this child who would be born this child who is God that's what we recognize and celebrate and marvel at every single Christmas if the light of God is to come it must be through the God man Jesus Christ who has come to reconcile us to God so the child who is to come as the light of the world his identity is as 
God and man, but he also has a really specific mission. And his mission is to rescue and to reign. The, the light of the world is, is, you know, a metaphor that refers to life. Um, uh, often it refers to joy and glory, and all those themes are present here. But as the light of the world, Jesus also comes as a king. And he comes as a king to conquer our enemies, to rescue us, to vanquish our foes, to usher in an era of peace that will last forever and reign in power over us. We see that language here in verse 7. He will be what no king before him was. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. See, the birth of a child who is God that we find in the Gospels, his birth signaled the beginning of a new kingdom, and this child would be its king. There is a new kingdom that has come, and, and all who, who find themselves trusting in this child who is God, this king who reigns, are citizens of that kingdom, and it is a kingdom that will never end. And it is a kingdom that we would never want to end because it is a kingdom full of perfect justice and perfect righteousness. It is a kingdom full of perfect peace. It is, it is what Israel always idealized for themselves and it was what the Lord himself had called Israel to be even in the kingship that he, given, he had given them. But they failed and they failed and they failed and they failed. But light has come from heaven it has dawned and it will shatter the darkness a king will reign his kingdom will have no end and we can be sure of this promise because the lord of hosts himself will do it and his zeal will guarantee it so if you find yourself this morning in the darkness and by the way if you don't think you are in the darkness you are it's around you, it's within you. But if you find yourself there, you need to hear this message. Light has come and it has come for you. It has, it has dawned in the most unexpected, unlikely of places. It has come in weakness first. And it will come in power later because the king who reigns right now, who calls you, beckons you into his kingdom of which there is light forevermore. He is going to return and when he returns, he will return not in weakness, he will return in power, and he will return in judgment. He will return to call his people home, to establish them in the land of the living forevermore. And he will cast out all who are not his in outer darkness forevermore. So, so Christmas compels us to live on mission. It compels us to to tell the good news that the light has come and it compels us to go to others with this message to, to remind them that not only has the light come but, but one day those who have continued to turn from the light have refused to see it have, have refused to receive Christ as he, as he is they will be cast out 
So Christmas compels us to go to our friends, to go to our neighbors, to go to those that we know who have yet to believe in Jesus, not because we're trying to build some religion here, but because the light has come. And we want to testify to it. And because one day, those who refuse to walk in the light will receive outer darkness. As we wait, as those suffering in a land of darkness and the shadow of death, um, we wait knowing that suffering is ahead of us. It's, a, it's a, maybe a little dark thought um, this time of year, but in 2022, um, we joke all the time, like, you know, huh, 2020, rough. 2021, maybe rougher. 2022, we're just going to keep, you know, the trajectory. We'll just keep spiraling down together as a society. And we joke about that, but we will likely suffer in one way or another in 2022, and we have no idea what that will look like. And you may not, and maybe it will come later. Eventually, death will come. It comes for all of us. We can't avoid it, and we can't escape it. We live in the shadow of death until the king returns. And when he returns, he will fully and forever vanquish all of our foes of sin, suffering, death, and Satan himself. But while we wait, we have to wait as Isaiah was calling the Israelites to wait, with hope. Not an empty hope, but a hope that is anchored to the person of Jesus who came in history to rescue us and who reigns on high forevermore even now. But we wait. We wait in this way. So I'll, I'll allow Isaiah to, to exhort you as you wait in the land of darkness for the light to one day finally and forever shine and shine in such a way that light from the sun will be completely unnecessary. Isaiah tells us, I will wait for the Lord. I pray that we'll each be able to say this with confidence. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. If you feel the Lord is hiding his face from you, do what, Israel, or what Isaiah is commanding Israel to do, to wait. And I, he says, I will hope in him. Would you hope in the light of Christmas?